So please let yourself sit at ease as you listen. And let the listening and the words rise and fall like your breath. You don't have to remember much from this talk. Maybe a few lines if they stick. Um, Let the quality of the evening Dharma teachings be very much a meditative one. Also, I should say for the few of you that were here in this room last Monday night, that this is pretty much the same talk that you heard at that time. So you get to practice beginner's mind, hear it anew. The root practice text in the tradition of the elders, the way of the elders, which is what we follow here at Spirit Rock. Theravada means the way of the elders. Is the text on the establishment of mindfulness that Thich Nhat Hanh has entitled in his translation and book, Transformation and Healing. And the first verses begin, My friends, said the Blessed One, there is a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the path of wakefulness and compassion, and realize liberation. And this way, is the establishment of mindfulness. In what ways is mindfulness established, my friends? First, a practitioner remains established in awareness of the body in the body, diligent, clear, mindful, abandoning both grasping and distaste for every experience. The practitioner remains established in awareness of feelings in the feelings, in awareness of the mind in the mind, and in awareness of the Dharma or the laws within the Dharma. Finding a quiet place at the foot of a tree, one sits down, or an empty room, one sits down, holding one's body erect and establishes mindfulness first of this breath and body and all that happens to it. So as the opening talk, I'd like to set the tone for this practice of mindfulness we share together. Both the Buddha and Jesus have been known as great healers, the great physicians, healers of the body, of the heart, and the spirit. I like to tell in one account I've written of this amazing monastery that I visited during the war in South Vietnam with the war all around. And on this little island that was an island of peace, there were these two huge statues, one of the Buddha 50 feet tall, and next to him, an equally tall statue of Jesus. And they had their arms around one another, teaching a different way 
than that surrounding them. How can we understand healing, awakening, and the freedom of heart and mind that comes out of this healing attention in ourselves, between one another? The liberation and the healing taught by the Buddha comes first of all out of our capacity for deep listening. A story that I haven't read or told in quite a long time until this week written by Richard Selzer, who is a surgeon at Yale University. On the bulletin board in the front hall of the hospital where I work, there appeared an announcement. Yeshe Dundon will make rounds at 6 o'clock, morning of June 10th. Then it was noted, Yeshe Dundon is the personal physician to the Dalai Lama. I am not so leathery a skeptic that I would knowingly ignore an emissary from the gods. Thus, on the morning of June 10th, I joined the clutch of white coats waiting in the small conference room adjacent to the ward selected for rounds. The air in the room of doctors is heavy with ill-concealed dubiety and suspicion of bamboozlement. (laughs) At precisely six o'clock, he materializes a short, golden, barrelly man dressed in a sleeveless robe of saffron, his scalp shaven, He bows in greeting while his young interpreter makes the introduction. Yeshe Dundon, we are told, will examine a patient selected by a member of the staff. The diagnosis is unknown to Yeshe Dundon as it is to us. The examination of the patient will take place in our presence, after which we will reconvene in the conference room where Yeshe Dundon will discuss the case. We are further informed that for the past two hours, Yeshe Dundon has purified himself by bathing, fasting, and prayer. I look at my fellow physicians. Suddenly we seem a rather soiled, uncouth lot. (laughs) The patient had been awakened early and told she was to be examined by a foreign doctor. So when we enter her room, the woman shows no surprise, but rather the compliance and resignation that is the face of chronic illness yet another in a series of examinations. Yeshe Dundon steps to the bedside while the rest stand apart, watching. For a long time he gazes at the woman, favoring no part of her body, but fixing his glance above her supine form. I too study her. No sign or symptom gives a clue to her disease. At last he takes her hand, raising it in both of his own. Now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, his eyes closed as he feels for her pulse. In a moment he has found the spot, and for the next half hour he remains thus, suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, cradling her hand in his. All the power of the man seems to have been drawn down to this one purpose. From the foot of the bed, where I stand, It is as though he and the patient have entered a space of isolation, inviolate. After a moment, the woman rests back upon her pillow. From time to time, she raises her head to look at the strange figure above her and sinks back again. I cannot see their hands joined in a correspondence that is exclusive, intimate, his fingertips receiving the voice of her sick body through the rhythm and throb she offers at her wrist. 
All at once, I am envious. Not of him, not of Yeshe Dandan for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, touched, so received. And I know that I, who have palpated thousands of pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, Yeshe Dundan straightens, gently places the woman's hand on the bed and steps back. The interpreter produces a small wooden bowl into which a portion of urine specimen is poured. He whips the liquid with two sticks, inhales the odor, sets the bowl down, and before he turns to leave, acknowledges her gently. All the while, he has not uttered a single word. As he nears the door, the woman raises her head and calls out in a voice both urgent and serene, Thank you, doctor, she says, and touches with her other hand the place he had held on her wrist as though to recapture something magical that had visited there. Yeshe Dundon turns into the corridor, rounds are at an end. Now we are in the conference room. He begins to speak in soft Tibetan, the young interpreter beginning a tandem bilingual fugue. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers, eddying. These vortices are in her blood, he says, the last bendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of the heart, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be allowed to be opened. Through it charge the full waters of her river as the mountain stream cascades in spring, battering the land, flooding her breath. Thus he speaks and is silent. May we now have the diagnosis, a professor asks. The host of these rounds, the man who knows, answers. Congenital heart disease, interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, a hole that must not be opened, through it charges the full waters that flood her breath. So, here is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. He is more than doctor, he is priest. I know the doctor to the gods is pure, the doctor to man stumbles, must wound, his patient must die, as must he. But now and then it happens, as I make my own rounds, that I hear the sound of his voice, like an ancient Buddhist prayer, its meaning long since forgotten, only the music remaining. And then a jubilation possesses me, and I feel myself touched by something divine. To pay attention so deeply, to listen as those fingers on this wrist, to listen without judgment or resistance or expectation, to open ourselves to the rhythm of our breath and the pulse of our life, to the impermanence that makes up this human experience is the invitation of this retreat. And when I hear this story, I'm reminded for myself and perhaps for so many of us 
that we long to be held so, to be received, to listen, to be listened to. The world itself, our family, our garden, our co-workers, the prisoners, the laborers, the managers, all want to be listened to. Yeshe Dundon shows through the power of his listening in this story, how even in the face of the great truths of impermanence, immense suffering, illness, even death itself, it is possible to listen with the heart. I was with a very dear friend recently who's undergoing chemotherapy for breast cancer that spread in her body, doing a kind of guided meditation. And I invited her with her eyes closed to visualize finding herself in a healing environment, a healing temple. And what came immediately in her image was fire and flames. And she said, I feel like I am descending into hell. She was really frightened. And I said, stick with it. This is the fire that purifies. She had just had her first blast of major chemotherapy some days before that had made her incredibly sick and fiery and so forth. I said, this is the fire that's moving through your body to purify and heal and cleanse you. Don't move away from it, but rest in its midst. And we stayed there for a time breathing And then of itself, the fire diminished and a great, lovely green light and spirit rose out of the ashes of the fire. When we sit, we face our own lives, our joys and sorrows. And there comes in the space of attention, of that listening, a growing trust in the capacity of our heart to be present for the reality of human life. It's the space of openness, of respect, that brings healing. A poem for you from William Stafford for starting the retreat. This is the field where the battle did not happen, where the unknown soldier did not die, This is the field where grass joined hands, where no monument stands, and the only heroic thing is the sky. Birds fly here without any sound, unfolding their wings across the open. No people killed or were killed on this ground, hallowed by neglect and an air so tame that people celebrate it by forgetting its name. the hallowedness and the sacredness of that which is natural, which is alive without our interference. So the invitation of this treatise on mindfulness of the Buddha is to seed ourselves and to discover this spaciousness and the freedom and healing that it brings in every dimension of our life. To be aware of the body 
in the body. Usually, we identify with it, we fear for it and grasp it and get entangled with what's going wrong with it. Or, even more often, we ignore it, we dissociate, we're out of touch. You remember the line from James Joyce where he wrote, Mr. Duffy lift a short distance from his body. So we sit with the Buddha's invitation to experience the healing, the transformation, the liberation of awareness of the body in the body. And we start with the breath, so simply. Long breath, short breath, shallow, deep. It gets so soft sometimes, it's hard to pay attention, you get lost. But if you feel for it, there will always be this very soft breath that comes and goes. Bring your attention down to that level. Sometimes there's a space between breaths. Or it feels shallow and you say, I want a deep breath. But your task is to bow to it and say, oh, this is a shallow breath. And then see what the next breath does, because you do not know. It's to rest in the breathing as it breathes itself and make space for that breath. This is the healing attention. And it needs a real tenderness on our part. Robert Bly put it this way, the heart, the awakened heart, is a place of tenderness. The cultivated heart requires intensification toward tenderness. And this is what we are cultivating. So we sit and we feel the breath and let it guide us to this space of listening, of opening. And of course, as we do, then all the other stuff in the bodily experience arises. Pain comes, contraction, all the tensions that we carry and don't notice because we're running around so much, myself included. And then we sit down and there it is. The shoulders, the back, the neck, the jaw, wherever it is. We contract against it. Where pleasure comes and we grasp, oh, this is good, I want this more. Next sitting, how do I get that back? That was so cool. Tip my head, breathe a little this way, maybe it'll come more again. We get attached to it. Or neutral things come and we just go back to sleep. You've noticed. But most of all, in the first days, there is this deep release of the holdings of the body. Alice Miller puts it this way. The truth about our childhood is stored up in our body, and although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, and conceptions confused, and our body tricked by medication. But someday our body will present its bill, for it is as incorruptible as a child, who still whole in spirit will accept no compromises or excuses and will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading its truth. So here we are together with our body. It is the reality of our life. And what mindful attention means is to create the benevolent space that can allow this to open as it needs to. How do we touch the pains, the tension, 
the sorrows, the disease, with fear, with aversion, with pushing them away, with contraction around every pain? Is it possible to not torment ourselves any further, to establish the ground of mercy and listening and compassion like Yeshe Dandan, to hold this body and re-inhabit it? And even if it's in great pain, which it will in some sittings for most of us, can we hold this like a child who is ill or frightened or feverish or contracted? and breathe along with the child. Can we be present for this body we have been given, this precious body? Because when the attention becomes pure like that, what comes immediately and naturally is compassion. It floods into us, it heals us, it holds what is here. Don't move at all but let your eyes close just as you sit. And feel, let yourself be aware of the places in your body that carry the most contraction or pain or disease or suffering. Bringing your attention gently to that area. Let yourself float the pain in an ocean of kindness, of gentle mindfulness, of compassionate openness. And feel how it likes it, what it does. You'll notice as you float it there gently that it will do one of three things. It will dissolve. It will float and stay the same or it will get worse. That's not your job. Let it do whatever it needs to to be received and open. Now sense as you sit with this spacious awareness, imagine extending this capacity to be with illness and aging, with vulnerability in yourself and others. The pure open awareness that can be present for the breath in and breath out for the whole life and death of this body. Let yourself come back. So simple. This touch of awareness, like the touch at the wrist, the presence. And as we begin to live in the reality of this physical experience, the embodied attention of breath and change and pleasure and pain and contraction and expansion, which is what the body does. It breathes, it 
It moves its fluids, it opens, it closes. As we find the spaciousness to know this reality, there comes a healing not only to ourselves, but connecting us to the healing of this earth. Because it's being out of touch, not aware, that brings environmental disasters and continuing warfare and racism and the loss of species and overcrowding. We have lost our ability to listen deeply. Wordsworth, the world is too much with us late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours, we have given our hearts away. To sit is to reclaim in an honorable way our place on this earth, to hear the pulse of our own body, of the woods and the forests, and the wind and the seasons, to find our rhythm in them. This is the invitation of the Buddha. Come with me, he said, and live in the forests, in nature. Rachel Carson puts it this way. A child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us that clear-eyed vision, that true instinct for what is beautiful and awe-inspiring, is dimmed and lost before we reach adulthood. If I had influence with the good fairy who's supposed to preside over the christening of all children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world be a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout their life unfailing. And our attention is that sense of wonder. Now, just as we can be aware of the breath, and the body, in similar ways, the Buddha suggests that we bring this awareness to feelings in the feelings and mind in the mind, dharma in the dharma, going through each a little bit further. Feelings in the feelings. Don Juan, Castaneda's teacher, said, the most difficult part about the sorcerer's way is to realize that the world is a feeling. Kind of remarkable statement, to realize that the world is a feeling. This amazing capacity to feel and to know life through our feelings, pleasant and neutral and unpleasant, and then out of those the thousand emotions that arise time after time. I sometimes on retreat will read from the longer list of 500 feelings, which include affectionate, ambitious, ambivalent, amused, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, appreciative, argumentative, blissful, broken-hearted, buoyant, calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, concentrated, 
compassionate, concerned, curious, delighted, depressed, disheartened, driven, ebullient, fearful, frightened, hateful, honored, humble, hysterical, glad, gluttonous, grateful, grave, greedy, jealous, jovial, joyful, pissed off, pleased, prudish, sad, silly, sleepy, sober, spacious, sympathetic, could go on and on. Amazing, isn't it? Hundreds of them. And what does awareness, the liberation, the healing of the feelings ask of us? To know them. To make space to actually feel them as they arise and as they pass away. Because they govern our lives so much and yet we're so little aware of them. And you sit down and look inside the kind of emotional intelligence that's been absent and you see what C.S. Lewis described when he looked inside, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. <laughs> Often we don't even know what we feel. Someone will come to an interview, what are you feeling? I don't know. I mean, I had such a problem with this when I returned from the years I spent in the monastery and uh, went, gotten to a relationship with a woman I had known in college, a very wonderful woman. And she would ask, where do you want to go to dinner? Do you want Chinese food or Italian or go out for pizza? What would you like? And I, you know, whatever they put in the begging bowl is fine with me. I don't care. What would you like, dear? What would you like to do this weekend? Do you want to go out in the country and take a walk? Do you want to go to, you know, hear some blues in, in the city, in a club? I don't care, dear, whatever you like. You know, and it went on and on like that. Drove her nuts. Finally, one day she said, you know, you think this is so enlightened. You were like this before you went in the monastery. (laughs) It just means you're not in touch with your feelings, honey. Here, and she got me a little notebook and she said, I want you to write down every day ten things that you like or you hate and start to figure out what it is that's going on inside you. A little assignment. Now, often Buddhism if you read about it, will emphasize the problems of the afflictive emotions, getting rid of jealousy and fear and hatred and so forth. But that's not the game we're playing. And that's a kind of initial step for some people, perhaps. But there's some deeper wisdom that we all need to understand that only comes with this healing presence in the heart. William Blake put it this way, joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. It is right it should be so, for man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. In his kind of simple way, man, humans were made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. It's not a problem that we have feelings. 
It is our identification, our getting caught, caught up, our closing down, our fear of, our entanglement in them, like all things, that is really the problem. Feelings are just feelings. So, let's see if I can, this way. Awakening to emotions means simply to feel them. Nothing less, nothing more. It does not require changing your feelings. Feelings change all the time on their own. We fear the destructive power of our emotions when we haven't seen them for what they really are. We confuse allowing ourselves to be aware of them with the necessity to act them out. We need to see how we've been entangled and identified with the body of fear, the hurt and frustrated feelings of childhood, the forces of anger or pride or longing that have been conditioned in us, and ask, is this who I really am? with the spacious heart of attention. If we can hold our feelings in this great heart, they will arise in a new and transformed fashion, transformed by our acceptance. When we sit on retreat, there come so many different feelings. And one of the most difficult to be with in the beginning are the unfinished business of the heart, the tears we carry, the grief. And they're there because of the ways we've shut down and been too busy to feel, and because we live in a culture that has forgotten how to grieve, forgotten to grieve the two million people locked in its prisons, or the children that still don't have decent food or health care, or the fact that we sell weapons to most countries on earth and then wonder why we're insecure. The ideals that we have that founded this society that we don't live anymore. And the personal griefs we carry, the secret griefs and losses that are written on every human heart. And what we're asked to do is to sit and honor with that same touch to the wrist, that same healing attention, whatever feelings want to come. If it's our tears, let it be. As the Sufi poet Ghalib writes, for the raindrop joy is in entering the river. Travel far enough into sorrow and tears turn into sighing. When after the heavy rains the storm clouds disperse, is it not that they wept themselves clear to the end? Overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you, says the Sufis. Like the mother of the world, we each carry part of the cosmic sorrow and pain of this world in our heart. We share it. Mindfulness, feelings in the feelings, is that practice that allows us to sit and bow to the broken heart and the needy heart, the anger and restlessness, the joy and ecstasy, the happiness and excitement, each in their turn, to sit like the Buddha, And the image that's given 
is if you take salt, a big tablespoon of salt, and put it in a cup and drink it, the water is salty and hard to drink. But if you take that same tablespoon of salt and put it in the pond, in a little while you drink the clear water of the pond and it's still delicious and untainted. Let your heart and mind expand like the pond, like space, and receive the play of human feelings with the forgiving and compassionate and wise and open space. To know the feelings as they change, one feeling after another in the feelings. To know the mind in the mind, with the mind to observe the mind. So many thoughts and images as we sit here. Unbelievable, the thought factory keeps going, sitting after sitting. As the poet Muriel Ruckheiser puts it, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. Or Marcus Aurelius who wrote, the soul becomes dyed with the color of its thoughts. And we can feel the way the thoughts flavor our consciousness, the beliefs and stories. The fear comes and we believe it and it's like that passage from Mark Twain where he wrote, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. (laughs) All those stories that we tell. Or the opposite side, the kind of perennial optimist. No need to check on the engine just because the oil light is on, you know. No need for the medical checkup. We have a different kind of story. All these different stories. Let's see. We participate in the creation of these stories. We can each enact the personal myths of warrior, goddess, eternal adolescent, great mother, king, queen, master, slave, or servant of the divine. Is our life a story of riches or poverty? Are we the victim, the lost soul, the one who suffers, the prodigal son, the workhorse, the conqueror, the mediator, the nurturer, or the sage? The stories become the patterns of our life when we don't see them. And as you sit, you see how we're entranced, blinded by the thoughts of the mind. Praise and blame all the time. Every possibility, the mind has no pride. It'll do anything. The judge, the tyrant, the fussy child, the overzealous meditative bureaucrat. You know, you've seen it, all of this. My teacher, Nisargadat, in India, the guru, he said, the mind makes the abyss and the heart crosses it. The question for us is, do we take this mind seriously as if it really knows? Does it know where you're going? What's going to happen? Who you really are? What love is? what consciousness is. I mean, it's okay to make some plans. You know, they come out sometimes that way and sometimes they don't. 
some thoughtful analysis, but the mind is so limited, the thinking mind. And sure, we can train it and direct it and purify it, take its pulse, notice its patterns, see how it's impermanent. It has one opinion and a few months later it's a Republican. You know, it does. Or maybe a libertarian. But the real healing of our attention is to shift from the mind to the heart, to step into or rest in that eternal, timeless present that is always here, to be here now, to quiet the mind and open the heart. Thomas Merton put it this way, There is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence that is a fountain of action and joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out to me from the unseen roots of all creation. So the texts which speak to you, O nobly born, O you who are the son or daughter of the Buddha. The visions that you see, the visions and appearances that may arise in this mind are simply that. The colors and patterns and thought forms are based on your past desires and fears and karma. They cannot hurt you. Let them arise and pass as they will and rest in your own true nature. Rest in the space of awareness, the healing space of the heart that sees for and against, that sees liking and disliking, that sees remembering and planning, worrying and guilt. And instead, Let all those things be held in the spacious, healing compassion of the heart. It's just the mind doing its thing, stressed, guilty, ambitious, planning. Oh, it's just thinking, thank you for your opinion. I did that really well. Pride, thank you for that too. Just bowing to the states and resting in this ground of attention that is untainted, where the thoughts appear and liberate themselves by vanishing, leaving no trace. This is to see the mind in the mind. The Dharma in the Dharma. When we sense the possibility of healing the body in this body, feelings in the feelings, mind in mind. We already begin to know the Dharma, the law, the way things are that is inhabiting all experience. It is our true nature. And the healing that takes place is that of emptiness, of openness, of letting go. Every time we pay attention, we become emptier. And the more empty we are, 
the more healing space we can offer to ourself and the world. Here's Zhuang Tzu, the Taoist sage. He says, a drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security. He's not conscious of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out of it. Ideas of life, death, fear, and the like cannot penetrate his breast, and so he does not suffer from contact with objective existence. If such security is to be got from wine, how much more is it to be found in the divine? At the center of the Buddha's liberation on the night of his enlightenment, he saw the truth of suffering, that this human life has of necessity pleasure and pain, birth and death, joy and sorrow, and that it is difficult, not because we're doing it wrong, but because that is its own nature. He also saw that it changes from moment to moment. Conditions change like a river. The truth of impermanence is that no moment, no meditation, no day can ever be repeated. It is always, always new. And realizing this, instead of grasping in fear, trying to repeat things, he let go and discovered the emptiness, the openness, beyond the small sense of self, the body of fear. Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, and a dream, says the Diamond Sutra. And there comes then this great sense of openness that is unconditioned, the invitation to the deathless. The heart and mind is like space, says Ajahn Sumedho. There's room in it for everything, or nothing. We always have a wise perspective once we know the space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, tragedy, or comedy, or nothing at all. All things can arise and pass through us without being caught in reaction, or fear, or resistance. This is the practice of freedom. There comes, as we listen, the way Yeshe Dundon listened, to this very body and mind and life, a shift of identity from the small plans and ideas, the small sense of self. A bear paced up and down the 20-foot length of its cage When, after 15 years, the cage was removed, the bear continued to pace up and down the 20-foot length as if the cage were still there. Did you ever notice that in your sittings, how we can do that? There comes upon recognition in a moment, any moment, 
We've seen it already. The realization that this is not who we really are. A relaxing, an opening, a letting go, a shift of identity. Letting go of all that is in time. Seeing that we don't possess anything. We just rent it for a little while. It's so tentative. And therefore we can care for it bring a presence to this precious life, a meticulous and courageous heart, but we are no longer lost in that which arises and that which passes away. Inner peace is the key, says the Dalai Lama. If you discover this inner peace, all the external problems will not affect your deep sense of tranquility and ease. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, look into your own mind. In its true nature, mind is naked, immaculate, empty, being of the voidness, clear, timeless, as vacuous as the sky, containing all things, yet not limited by them. And from this direct knowing, this invitation, comes ease, relaxation, healing, the laughter of the wise, and this great sense of mystery. All we can do is bow. Like the Indian Crowfoot, who wrote more than a hundred years ago, What is this life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. In each of us is a longing for wholeness, for freedom, connectedness and joy. That day where freedom will dawn is here already. That day is today, is every day. The invitation of this listening heart is to rest just where we are. This mindful presence, the gateway to the deathless. Wisdom sees I am nothing, and love sees I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. There's a tremendous healing and love that comes when we can make this space for body in the body, feelings in the feelings, mind in the mind, and dharma in the dharma. Lest I make it sound too grandiose and inflated, I'll end with a little passage from Annie Lamott, our local humorist book on 
writing in life entitled Bird by Bird, and it's kind of the, the story from which the title was taken. She writes, 30 years ago, my older brother, who was 10 years old at the time, was trying to get a report on birds written that he'd had three months to work on. It was due the next day. We were out at our family cabin in Bolinas, and he was at the kitchen table close to tears, surrounded by binder paper and pencils and unopened books on birds, immobilized by the hugeness of the task ahead. Then my father sat down beside him, put his arm around my brother's shoulder and said, bird by bird, buddy, just take it bird by bird. (laughs) Let's sit. A few small reminders before we go off to walking meditation. Tomorrow morning, the wake-up will be at 5.45 and the sitting then at 6.15 to 7. Um, The back altar in this room we have created as a community altar. And we invite you to place pictures of loved ones or images of teachers or friends, or found objects from your walks, pine cones and feathers, or, or uh, prayers for the world or people you care about, as you like, on the altar. I think that's the only announcements. So there's... Uh, 45 minutes for walking and then sit again from 9 to 9.30. Be patient. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.